Pop Culture Affidavit, episode 133. Some kind of wonderful. Hello and welcome to episode 133 of Pop Culture Affidavit, the podcast that takes a look at everything random in the world of popular culture, which is brought to you by the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network. I'm your host, Tom Hanneries. Well, after last episode's look at American history told through comics, I wanted to veer back into the usual territory for this podcast. There's no better way to do that than to return to one of my tried and true topics 80s teen movies. And specifically, I'm going to once again go to the master of the teen movie, John Hughes. You've heard me talk about his films before. Specifically, I did an episode about The Breakfast Club a number of years ago. And I'll link to that one in the show notes for you if you want to go back and listen to it. But this time, I'm going to be looking at Hughes's final teen movie which was 1987's Some Kind of Wonderful. I'm going out with a girl tonight, and she's beautiful, and everybody's in love with her, and she's going out with me. I just want you to get off the dime and think about your future. She's beautiful, and obviously in the middle of some emotional shootout to consent to date the human tater tot. This is 1987. Did you know that a girl can be whatever she wants to be? I know. My mom's a plumber. I'd recommend you keep your eyes and your mind off my property. Cut it out. Much of my own business. Really, it must be a drag to be a slave to the male sex drive. I didn't say anything about sex. Oh, want to start a book club with her? Anytime somebody from the outside lifts a woman from a quat like Jen's, man, we could all find cause to rejoice. You walk out on me, where are you going to go? I want to show this girl that I'm as good as anybody else. I know how you feel. You've been in love before. There's a lot of things you don't know about me. He got a shot to be the first guy in his family who didn't have to wash his hands after a day's work. Break his heart and break your face. Do you miss me, Keith? Do you miss not being around me? This isn't the third grade anymore. Are oh, you only 18 years old? Then I'm 19 and I'm 20. When does my life belong to me? Released on February 27, 1987, Some Kind of Wonderful was written and produced by John Hughes, but directed by Howard Deutsch, who had helmed Pretty in Pink for Hughes to acclaim and success. However, Deutsch actually wasn't originally going to direct the movie. He'd been hired after the success of Pretty in Pink, but as he mentions in an interview on the 2021 Blu-ray edition, he was having some issues with casting in pre-production, and as he tells it, ran into Brian De Palma on a plane, 
De Palma said, if you can't cast it, don't film it. After he took this advice and relayed it to Hughes, Deutsch found himself literally out of a job. His office in Paramount was locked, and Valley Girl's Martha Coolidge was hired to direct the film. Uh, this story is one of those many John Hughes took things too personally and kept grudges stories that I've read or heard about the man. But that aspect of who he was and his relationships with actors and colleagues is something I'm saving for another episode in the future. So the film itself had kind of a troubled history in terms of its production, um, in terms of the actors, the recasting, rewriting, reshooting, etc. It did get put on the shelf for a little bit after Deutsch got fired and Martha Coolidge got hired because according to Deutsch, Hughes rewrote it after that. And then rehired him because what was with Martha Coolidge, it just wasn't working out. It wasn't what he wanted. But the movie went from what was a comedy to a more dramatic film. Um, and it is. It is quite simply more of a dramatic film than, say, uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off or Sixteen Candles. But originally it was written way more slapsticky and comedic. Moreover, the film became an attempt for Hughes and Deutsch to essentially kind of redo Pretty in Pink the right way. Not that there is anything wrong with Pretty in Pink, but when you watch Some Kind of Wonderful, it's hard not to see the similarities between the two films, and they are kind of deliberate. I'm going to get to some of that later on in my review of the movie, so just kind of put a pin in that for now. Now, in the production, Deutsch came back on and uh, the roles were eventually cast. But this movie is what famously led to the falling out between Molly Ringwald and John Hughes. Now, Ringwald had been his essentially his muse. She's in, out of his like six or seven teen movies, she's in three of them. And she's in three of the most popular ones, 16 Candles, The Breakfast Club, and the aforementioned Pretty in Pink. And the similarity to Pretty in Pink and this movie was too much for her. She wanted to move on to more adult roles and didn't really want to basically be keep playing the same characters. So she turned this movie down. I've read that she was supposed to play either Amanda or Watts, uh, those characters, Mary Stuart Masterson was eventually cast in the role of Watson. She actually was one of the first people fully cast. Uh, so by the time everybody else kind of came on, she had been with both directors for a significant amount of time. Uh, Ringwald, by the way, would go on to the pickup artist for Keeps and Fresh Horses and Betsy's Wedding were like four movies of her that came out in the very late 80s and very early 90s. So say what you will about her decision. It it was hard for a teenage actress who's known for teen films to make a move to more adult films. In fact, it's still kind of like that. Not every, I mean, I think this has got a little better over the last few years. Um, Emma Stone has done it pretty well. She was in only a couple of teen movies Mandy Moore has has had a very uh, successful adult actress film career. Uh, but not everybody is like Jodie Foster or Helen Hunt. Most of them end up kind of like Lindsay Lohan, to be honest with you, or, or somebody who just has a decent career in, in teen movies and then is kind of making like the B-level stuff. Anyway, back to the film. Ringwald's out. Mary Stuart Masterson and all the rest of the cast is in. And the film was shot in 1986 and released in 1987. It was the same year that Hughes filmed and released Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. 
And it was a year before Deutsch and Hughes collaborated one more time, which was 1988's The Great Outdoors. Now, some kind of wonderful, as far as the Hughes catalog and as far as the Hughes teen catalog, is one of the lesser films. It didn't make Bueller or Pretty in Pink money. It did make $18.5 million. Um, I don't know what the budget for the film was, but it put the movie at number 58 overall for 1987, of course, according to Box Office Mojo. So it was nowhere near the hit that some of those other films were, were but it wasn't a complete bomb. Um, by the way, it made just $2 million less than Benji the Hunted, which was the number 55 movie, and it edged out the Matthew Broderick movie Project X by $20,000. It also outgrossed, by the way, Masters of the Universe, which I saw in the theater. Uh, that was the number 65 film for that year. And also, unlike Benji the Hunted, which I actually had to remember actually existed, Some Kind of Wonderful has had a lasting effect on audiences, especially through video rentals and frequent showings on cable and in syndication. An afternoon showing on WPIX in New York is where I first saw the movie. A guy's first love isn't always picture perfect. I want to show this girl that I'm as good as anybody else. Will his Miss Wright be the fantasy girl who seems just out of reach? You're losing it. Or is she his best buddy who's been there all along? So, do you always bring an extra girl when you go out? Mary Stewart Masterson. Leah Thompson and Eric Stoltz in the first love story from director John Hughes. Break his heart and break your face. Some kind of wonderful. Tonight at 6 on Channel 11. And I'll get to my own story with this film a little later. First, though, I am going to run through the plot. Some Kind of Wonderful stars Eric Stoltz as Keith, a high school senior who works at a gas station but has a talent for painting, even though his dad, played by John Ashton from Beverly Hills Cop, is pressuring him to go to college for a business degree. And while his dad is hyper-focused on that college future along with saving money for said college future, and she's saved quite a lot, as has been indicated, Keith is focused on Amanda Jones, who's played by Leah Thompson, a gorgeous, popular girl who is as working class as he is, but who runs with the rich crowd and is dating preppy scumbag Hardy Jens, who's played by Craig Sheffer. By Keith's side and during all of this is his best friend, the tomboyish Watts, who is played by the aforementioned Mary Stuart Masterson, a drummer girl, as she's referred to in uh, the novelization, whom Keith has been friends with since they were little and is who is also hopelessly in love with him. Amanda and Hardy's relationship is pretty terrible. While it gets her into this in-crowd and gives her a best friend of Shane, who is played by Molly Hagen of Herman's Head fame. He constantly cheats on her, with China Phillips, no less. And this marks the second movie I've looked at from the 80s where China Phillips breaks up a relationship. The other is Say Anything. Joe dumps Corey for Mimi, and Mimi is played by China Phillips, so then that's why Corey writes 65 songs about Joe. They're all about pain. And Hardy essentially treats Amanda as property anyway. And this is to the point where he refers to his property, actually, after catching Keith looking at her. But on a night where Amanda and Hardy are fighting yet again, Keith, quote, rescues her by pulling her away from his bullshit and asking her on a date. Stuck for a way out of that situation and also pissed at her boyfriend, Amanda says yes. Now, 
News of this, which is a coup in the high school social world, spreads like wildfire across the school, at least according to Laura, who is Keith's younger sister. She's a sophomore, and she's played by Maddie Corman. And Laura's dumbfounded that Amanda Jones would deign to go out with, as she says it, the human tater tot. But the punks and the dorks and the less-than-beautiful people are congratulatory, especially Duncan, played by Elias Coteus, whom Keith has befriended in detention. Watts, well, she's trying to hide how upset she is, but it's not really working, especially when she offers to allow Keith to practice kissing on her and they share a really supercharged schmooch. Prior to the night of the date, Hardy comes to Keith and offers the olive branch of an invite to a party that he's throwing. Then Laura is at the mall with her friends, bragging how she's now in the in crowd by association with her human tater tot brother. Of course, they know she's full of shit. They dare her to hang out with Hardy and his friends, who are sitting by the nearby food court. So she heads over there and sits at the next table, kind of like, see I'm hanging with them sort of way. And she overhears them planning about how they're going to jump Keith at the party, which is basically the whole reason they invited him in the first place. So Laura runs home, she tells Keith, but Keith decides to go ahead with the date and the party anyway, even buying a pair of diamond earrings for Amanda as a gift. This costs him all of the college money. And Keith's father finds out about this, and an argument is followed by a serious talk about who wants what for the future. Keith leaves for the date on good terms with his dad, even if his dad is disappointed. The date itself is elaborate and it is expensive. Watts, who is traded in her jeans for a t- and t-shirt for a chauffeur's uniform, drives them around in a fancy old car that had been under rags in the garage where Keith works. They dine at an uptown restaurant on uptown cheeseburgers, and Keith takes Amanda on a private tour of the art museum. Duncan has set this up because his dad is the night watchman. It's on the walls there where Keith has hung a painting of Amanda that he'd been working on pretty much for the entire movie. We've seen him painting it over and over We know he's been sketching her, so this is kind of the reveal of what he's been working on. So then they head to the Hollywood Bowl, and they just sit on the stage and hang out. That's where Keith calls her out for using him, saying he knows about Hardy's plans to kick his ass. Amanda pushes back, telling him that he used her for a painting and seems to be getting off on the fact that she said she'd go out with him. He gives her the earrings. They kiss. Watts sees all of this from afar, and she can barely contain how upset she is. And when she delivers them to Hardy's party, <laughs> say that twice, she stays outside and doesn't go in. At the party, things go exactly as Hardy planned, more or less. Keith confronts him and pushes him, but Hardy's friends gang up on him and are about to take him out back and beat the shit out of him when Amanda intervenes, saying she'll get back with Hardy if he leaves Keith alone. Hardy, who is a total shitbag, starts telling her he wants her to beg for it, and that's when Duncan and his friends enter with what has to be one of my favorite speeches in any movie. I want you to beg. Let him go. Come on, you're begging. You're going to have to break. I don't think it's going to be necessary. No, I didn't know Jen's lived in a hen house. Did you know that? Jeez. 
Must be a hen house, because I don't see nothing but chicken shit. I don't want any trouble with you, all right? My parents are going to be home in a little while. You leave now and we'll forget everything. Wait, let's just cut the bullshit. Right. Please? I'm here to wipe the floor with your ass, and you know it, and everybody knows it, and you deserve it. I think it's safe to say that this party is about to become a historical fact. They let Keith go, Amanda slaps Hardy twice, and the couple leaves the party. A visibly upset Watts tells Keith that she's going to walk home and that the keys for the nice car are just in the ignition and he can drive himself. Amanda figures out that Watts is in love with Keith. And, and this is right before, like, he totally does. Too. He finally realizes it. So what she does is she gives Keith the earrings. And she tells him, go get Watts. And besides, Amanda needs to be on her own anyway. So Keith t- chases Watts down the street and they embrace. I don't need to tell you that I love this movie. I wouldn't be covering it if I didn't. In fact, I think it's number four on my list of favorite Hughes movies and number three in terms of the teen movies. Uh, the other four over in the overall Hughes list are in order. Uh, the Breakfast Club at number one, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles at number two, and Ferris Bueller's Day Off at number three. Now, when I think about why that is, I have to say that it has to do when I first saw it, which was sometime in the first half of high school. Much like a number of these movies, Better Off Dead, Fast Times at Ridgemont High, Say Anything, The Sure Thing, and The Breakfast Club, I saw some of it or all of it on television before I rented it from the video store. I'd heard of the movie. I'd seen the poster in the video store or at one point or another. I recognized Leah Thompson from movies like Jaws 3 and Space Camp. Oh yeah, Back to the Future. But really, I, I had a huge crush on her at the time because of Space Camp. Anyway... I knew the movie existed. I thought the title was cool, but in 1987, 88, I was still renting action movies and not teen comedies yet, you know? In fact, I think the only John Hughes teen comedy that I ever saw at the time was Ferris Bueller's Day Off. I owned it on VHS. But Ferris Bueller's Day Off 
is really funny when you're 12 and it's still really funny now, but like, you know, so it's, it's kind of the, that and maybe weird science are, are the two like huge comedies for, for 12 year olds up until say the great outdoors. I would add the great outdoors to that. Anyway, the emotion of some kind of wonderful doesn't really work when you're 10, 11, 12 years old. Fast forward to some point in high school, I'm flipping through channels on a weekend, bored off my ass, you know, as, as was usually the case. And I tuned to channel 11. Channel 11 was great for that sort of stuff. And I come upon one of the scenes outside the high school. It was either the scene where Duncan and Keith tussle for a moment and Duncan gets busted and put in detention or the scene where Watts is trying to use this skater dude named Ray to make Keith jealous. At any rate, I watched it all the way through to the end. I filed it away to rent it and watched it in full at some point. I'm unsure if I did until if I watched it all the way through until my uh, before I was uh, out of high school, though. Um, in high school, in my senior year of high school, I finally rented Pretty in Pink for the very first time, and I saw a really cool teaser trailer for the movie on VHS. So I might have actually waited a few years before I watched this because I, it just, I don't know, flipped in and out of my mind. Anyway, you really don't care about that. But um, the, the teaser trailer for this is great. It's, it's basically Watts, her torso and legs, playing the drums and then holding her drumstick in the air. Now... Mary Stuart Masterson in the making of this movie learned how to play the drums and actually still plays the drums, at least according to interviews and things I've read uh, of her. So it's very possible that it was her in that trailer and like way to go for, for putting an indelible image of this movie to associate with this movie into the trailer, kind of knowing that she would be the takeaway most critics, most people who know this movie remember how good she is in it and how cool she is in it. The rest of it, they might be a little bit spotty on. So it was good marketing on their part. And it's like I said, it's been, it, it's, it's a favorite, it's a favorite tre- teaser trailer of mine. It was enough to make me rent it and then buy the movie on VHS. And I had that VHS copy until last year when the movie came out on Blu-ray and I decided to spend the money on the new format. I'm really glad I did, too, because the Blu-ray looks great. It has some nice little features. A lot of them are recycled from the DVD released in the 2000s, but uh, they're kind of neat. And honestly, I just like the fact that I have a more current format for this movie. I mean, I'm pretty sure it's on streaming somewhere, but, you know, with with movies that I really love, even if I'm not going to watch them repeatedly, I do like to get them on a physical format. So there you go. Anyway, let's get into more of my review of the movie here, or at least my more in-depth comments about it. I guess I'll start off with criticism, because Some Kind of Wonderful is in no way a perfect film. It's very flawed, and I didn't expect it to be perfect. So I'll start with those criticisms, especially how in some places it has not necessarily aged well. Now, it's not the outright dumpster fire that quite a bit of 16 Candles is, but it also doesn't fit perfectly into the sensibilities of today. And I guess I shouldn't expect it to, considering that Some Kind of Wonderful was released 35 years ago and came out in a decade that was considerably more conservative. But the fact of the matter is that Keith's obsession with Amanda is, or is at least borders, on creepy. From the beginning of the movie, he's watching her, staring at her, and studying her. He paints her without her knowing it. It's... And, and I don't know what Hughes wants me to think about this, 
Because Eric Stoltz is the attractive, quiet guy here, and I think we're supposed to identify with him. I'm sure that many of us can relate to having a crush on someone way out of our league. I definitely had one of those back in high school, and while I never stood outside her house and watched her boyfriend leave after they'd cut class to screw like he does, I did have most of her schedule memorized. To be fair, we were both honor students. We had three or four classes together every year. It wasn't hard to figure out where else she was going during the day because we were always running into each other by default. Still, this whole Keith and Amanda thing, it is a little unsettling in that you aren't necessarily rooting for him as the hero of the story. In fact, I'm probably rooting for Watts more of the time. The date's a little unsettling, too. Now, we know, and, and Keith knows as well, that Amanda is from a neighborhood that is just, like, right with his. You know, they're both middle-class kids. They're not rich by any means. And she's in with that crowd, and she's kind of faking it. You know, the stuff, the clothes, the jewelry and stuff, a lot of it's borrowed from her friend Shane, who's, you know, jetting off to Aspen and Mexico and stuff for Christmas and spring break and stuff. Well, Amanda kind of has to, when she's, it's implied that she's, you know, living in a very, very small house and, uh, you know, possibly with, you know, her other siblings and things like that and has to take care of them. And as part of the audience, I get the sense that she's getting sick of what she's attached herself to, but she feels kind of stuck in the role. And that I can... Well, not relate. I can relate to have feeling that you have to play a role when you're in high school, but I can relate to, or at least understand the, I, I'm, I'm in this, I'm stuck. I would like to get out of it, which is in some cases why people like to leave high school behind at the end of it all. And I'll get a, a little more in depth on that in a little bit later. The problem though, is that Keith, even if he does see that, and he kind of does, he just decides to trouble double down on trying to give her what she wants, and then he's kind of a dick to her when they're on the date, at least at first. It's at the restaurant. He he has them like served caviar. He's like, I thought you liked this stuff. She's like, you know, I don't need this shit. And um then he kind of turns it around with the cheeseburgers and is kind of charming. And I can see that him being a dick to her in the restaurant is explained by the fact that he knows that Hardy is laying a trap for him at that party. And he kind of thinks that Amanda knows, even though it's clear that she may or may not know, but she's not part of the plan. She's, she's not the bait, right? And perhaps Hughes wrote this all in an, to make a comment on the artifice of all these things, you know, how it's not realistic to have these rich kids and how you don't necessarily need to impress the beautiful girl with the hugest, most expensive things. I can kind of see it, certainly because of how Amanda calls him on it when they're at the Hollywood Bowl. You know, he, Keith accuses her of using him, you know, again, with the whole thing with Hardy and the, and, the, and the beating him up. And when she talks about the painting, she has a line that, is a little too on the nose. She says, and what's on the wall in the museum? My soul? No, it's my face. Yeah, like I said, too on the nose. If Hughes had left it as my soul and made it a rhetorical question, it would have worked better. 
then again, we're dealing with teenagers. They don't exactly work in nuanced conversation most of the time. Whatever. My point, as rambling as it is, is that Keith's infatuation with Amanda is a bit problematic in the way that he pursues her. Now, however, that whole aspect of the film is saved by Keith ending up with Watts in the end, and by the chemistry that Stoltz and Thompson have with one another. They don't gel the way that Keith and Watts do, but Keith and Amanda have the type of chemistry that shows they seem to have an affection for one another, but deep down they know they don't belong together. Even the kiss while they're sitting on the stage of the Hollywood Bowl feels like more of kind of more of like a thank you than the two of them falling for one each other, one another, even though you can kind of see that they could. I don't think it would end particularly well, but you could see uh, some sort of spark in that moment, especially as they end up, you know, through the rest of the night. But Keith and Watts' first kiss, on the other hand, whew, I'll get to that after my other major criticism. And what that is, is that this film doesn't exactly know where it wants to land in terms of its style and its tone. Now, it's more complicated than that because Hughes and Deutsch and everyone who put the set costumes and music together did their best to give us what rich and poor kids probably looked and dressed like in 1987 instead of the more deliberate or cartoonish costuming of Hughes's other teen films. And it feels like older kids in 1987. But it also feels like an early 90s movie, slightly ahead of its time. The music is the same new wave alternative urb that uh, Hughes put forth in many of his movies, but it leans a little toward the latter category. Both Keith and Watts look like they'd be right at home with the soundtrack Cameron Crowe gave Say Anything. In fact, Say Anything has some of this movie's DNA. But the problem is that for every moment that is giving me alternative teen flick, say from 1990 or 1991, there's things like the occasional synth scoring that fits with like David Foster's St. Elmo's Fire themes. As well as a few moments that make the point a little too clearly. I mentioned the my soul know my face line, but there's also a moment at the very, very end of the movie when Keith is staring at Watts and he finally realizes that they're in love with one another. We get this quick cut to their kiss to show that's what they're thinking about it. Again, it's like we get that we don't need it it's like they they had to layer it on a little too thick for the audience they couldn't give us a little bit more of their trust really though there are way more great things i have to say about some kind of wonderful than there are negative and i'm actually going to revisit some of the points i made in that negative in those criticisms in this section because some of the things i mentioned there do come out as pluses in some ways now first of all the film is wonderfully acted there is genuine chemistry among the cast, and it's really important because while this isn't a weak script on the part of Hughes, like I said, there's some lines that when delivered the wrong way just don't work. Plus, Hughes lets Deutsch present the world of the movie in a way that eschews both the devotion to teen glam that he'd shown throughout his own movies, as well as take it away from the Shermer, Illinois setting that he usually worked in. All right, there are a few teen glam shots, and there certainly is a great male gaze shot on Leah Thompson in one scene, but for the most part, this doesn't feel as bewlery or even pretty in pink. Now, there's no references to specific geographical areas in uh, Some Kind of Wonderful, but the movie was shot in California. It clearly takes place in California. There's no need to shoehorn in a particular setting either. Um, we just are allowed to see the place. 
Now, those performances and the strength of those performances, I'll start with Eric Stoltz, who played Keith, because he's essentially the male lead. Stoltz isn't an actor that I've ever been hot or cold on. He's been very solid in everything I've seen him in, so I guess my opinion of his work is that it is consistent. I mentioned earlier that he plays the cute, quiet guy. He's perfect for it, especially considering we didn't get a lot of guys like him in Hughes' films. In fact, I'm not sure we got the soulful artist type of guy in any of the other Hughes movies. The boy that John Hughes wrote for the most part fit the more over-the-top storytelling he went for with even the most unpopular guys being more like Anthony Michael Hall as the geek in Sixteen Candles. And I can sort of imagine Hall trying to play Keith so that he could stretch a little bit beyond the character Hughes had him playing. But this movie came out just before Hall starred with Robert Downey Jr. in Johnny B. Good, a movie where he played a muscular football player. A movie that's pretty terrible, by the way. And while I think Hall could do intense, he certainly couldn't do what Stoltz does with Keith. It's like a subtle smolder. It's... it's it fits the look of this actor and the actor's personality in a way that very few other people could play this role. By the way, I don't know if Hall was ever actually considered for the movie. I know John Cryer was when Hughes and Deutsch were working on the first draft of the script, which was a little more 16 candles and a little more zany. And Keith was a little bit more of the sort of Anthony Michael Hall, the geek character. But uh, before this, I don't think Cryer would have done very well at the time with this type of character either. So Stoltz not only makes Keith's light stalking of Amanda palatable, he is a perfect foil for Mary Stuart Masterson Watts, who basically owns the movie. Like I said, if you ask most people who have seen or know of some kind of wonderful, the first thing they remember is how cool Watts is. Watts is the tomboy best friend. She plays the drums, and she's totally taken for granted by Keith. Masterson does a great job, especially in the scenes that are a little heavy-handed. For example, there's a scene about halfway through the movie where Keith shows up at a club to see a band that Amanda had mentioned that she liked, and he assumed that she'd be there. Again, it's that weird obsessive behavior I was talking about earlier. But that aside, he runs into Watts, who gives him this very dramatic speech wherein she essentially breaks up with him, a kind of this, I don't want to be your friend anywhere if you're going to be like this speech. And it, it is really dramatic. It's a dramatic version of this club scene in Pretty in Pink, where Ducky lays a kiss on Annie Potts and tells Andy she's been replaced. Like I said, there's a lot of similarities, deliberate similarities between these two movies. But... You know, Watts is in love with Keith. It's laid on a little thick in places, but it's Masterson who's really able to reel it back a little bit, knowing that the audience is going to get the point. This particular moment is a little more heavy-handed than the others, the one in the club, but I think it still works because not only is she in love with him, he he is throwing the whole Amanda Jones thing in her face, even if he doesn't realize that he's doing that. And when you've got salt rubbed in a wound like that, I don't care how tough you purport to be. It's gonna hurt. Plus, it kind of lays the groundwork for that practice kiss scene. While I realize it's a wholly manufactured moment, it is outright one of the best perfect movie kiss moments ever. Basically, Watts comes to the garage, says, what are you going to do with your kisser? You got to know how to kiss. Maybe you got to give the kiss that kills, she says. And she basically is like, 
pretend I'm a girl and or pretend I'm her and practice on me. And they they have this this kiss and they sell it like if you weren't completely shipping them by that point, then you definitely are because you feel every single second of it from the nervousness they both have as, as it begins to Watts' awkwardness at the end. And it's really passionate in the middle. In fact, um, like I said, it's Deutsch's using that in the end when he remembers it and sees her. Again, a little too on the nose. We could know that he's thinking about that without having to see it. We can, The audience can get into his head. We've known him for the whole movie at this point. But you know, there you go. Now, Amanda, played by Leah Thompson. Again, I said Space Camp's my Leah Thompson crush movie from the 80s. But she's really good as Amanda. Um, and she's, like I said, some from that same side of the tracks as Keith, but she runs with the rich crew. She borrows Shane's clothes. She dates Hardy Jens. He's the king. He's essentially queen by association. She's not a bitch, though. Uh, Amanda seems gra- genuinely nice. And while she is treated more like an object of affection through the first three quarters of the film and an object... Uh, you can see her inner conflict in places. In fact, it's a conflict that's in line with Molly Ringwald's teary confession that she hates having to play the game during the library confessions in The Breakfast Club. But instead of looking through Claire's crying and Claire's character the way that Bender does, and to be honest, a lot of us do, here you do see it is genuine with Amanda. You can see how she feels trapped in, in what she's, you know, she, it was kind of like a be careful for what you wish you'll get it scenario. As gorgeous as she is, it's the company that she keeps that makes her Amanda Jones, capital A, capital J. Thompson plays her sweet, but gives her some bite, especially during the film's climactic date. I've mentioned the my soul, no, it's my face line. But there's also a nice moment earlier in that date where, you know, where they go to that restaurant. And, you know, he's being a dick to her by showing her caviar. But then he says, you know, this is all uptown and they deliver cheeseburgers and fries. And she says, yeah, it's definitely uptown. She has a genuine smile, and he points out the smile there. And, and, and Leah Thompson has a very sweet smile. And And after this great little moment of hers where she bites back at him and doesn't feel bad, but she's just like, I don't need this shit and is about to leave. So Hughes and Deutsch give her a little bit more to work with rather than being a punching bag for Keith, just like she's an object for Hardy. Another moment that's great for Leah Thompson is when she does finally tell Harvey off. Uh, She slaps him twice and they're really good slaps, too. And then she goes and gives Keith the go-getter speech when it comes to Watts. Thompson and Stoltz don't have the chemistry that Stoltz and Masterson have. But that's the point. They have enough chemistry for that entire date portion of the film. So you're rooting for both of them in some way, especially against Harvey Jens. And Craig Sheffer plays Harvey Jens exactly the way he should. A guy who wants to be James Spader in Pretty in Pink, but he can't be. He's got none of Steph's charisma. 
it's like Steph is this sleazy asshole who's sexy. Hardy Jens is just an asshole. And what's funny is that um, when Martha Coolidge was doing this uh, movie, Hardy Jens was going to be played by Kyle MacLachlan. I can kind of see it. But I think that even McLaughlin has not spader charisma, but a different type of charisma that makes him like, uh, that also makes him kind of sexy. Um, now, it, it's hard to be sexy when you're balancing Elizabeth Berkeley on yourself in a pool, but Sheffer, Sheffer plays the asshole really, really well. The unlikable asshole. There's nothing likable about Hardy Jens, and that's the point. And my favorite thing, by the way, about Hardy is the way that is that way is that way. Cause he, the other thing is, is that he's an asshole, but he's a phony, uh, insecure piece of shit. And you can see him playing that. You can see how he knows he's phony. You can see him basically playing the big, rich asshole type character, but referring to Amanda as his property, literally reveals that insecurity. And he speaks in this like faux adult style that shows a guy who perceives himself to be the king, but deep down, to paraphrase Blaine from Pretty in Pink, knows he's shit. This all comes to a head at the party, at the end of the film, a scene where one of two actors who almost steal the movie have some of their best moments. That actor is Ilias Coteas playing Duncan. Duncan's a skidhead punk whose domain seems to consist entirely of the detention room. We see him early on harassing Watts, calling her a lesbian, and then almost getting into a fight with Keith before he's carted off to detention for having various forms of contraband. And he and Keith actually become friends over the course of film because Keith Keith sees Amanda get detention for cutting class. So he pulls a fire alarm so he can spend time in detention with Amanda, which I kind of get. It, it's such a stupid movie thing to do. But Amanda, because she's a cute girl, weasels her way out of detention by smooth talking the assistant principal. So Duncan and Keith end up in detention together. And over the course of the couple of weeks of detention they have, they become pretty good friends. I, I like it's it's one of the story beats in that movie that I really, really like. Keith's like sketching everything and Duncan's carving something into a desk and Keith shows him the drawing and Duncan's like, huh? And Duncan like rips the top of the desk off and shows him the desk. He's like, huh? So it's, it's some of those comedic beats that make, that make this and, and Elias Coteus really, really delivers in this part. And that helps with the end of the movie with Duncan arranging the Keith art museum portion of the date. Um, some of his other punk and metalhead friends take care of the Hollywood bowl part from what I've learned via the Blu-rays extras, Coteus improvised quite a bit of the film. And that's actually slightly unusual for a huge production because the man was a notorious control freak. I think it's two reasons for that. One, Hughes didn't direct this. He was mostly director in absentia. Deutsch had the control of the thing. And Coteus has a real huge presence in the film to the point where in the original draft of the movie, he didn't bust into the party with his friends. In fact, an earlier version of that script is what they based the novelization off of. And a quick tangent here. There is a novelization. <laughs> I know, right? Uh, it's something I learned while researching the episode. I went on to one of my favorite websites. That's TV Tropes. Because I wanted to just see what they had to say about Some Kind of Wonderful. And so I'm in the midst of reading their page about Some Kind of Wonderful... 
And I saw that somebody mentioned information that was only included in the novelization. For example, Watts's first name, which is never mentioned in the movie, is Susan. They often refer to her as drummer girl in the, in the novelization as well. So I looked it up. I found it for all of five bucks with shipping uh, via thrift books. So I ordered it. You know, what? couldn't pass that up. It was written by David Bischoff, whose other credits include a number of expanded universe novels for science fiction properties, such as Aliens, Farscape, Star Trek, The Next Generation, and novels for other 80s movies and 90s movies, such as War Games, The Blob, the 89 remake, Gremlins 2, The New Batch, and Hackers. Yes, there was a novelization of Hackers. Uh, this book, by the way, it runs just shy of 200 pages. It's a YA book, and it's 80s YA, not current YA, can, meaning that it was written for the junior high set and it was more likely to be found buried somewhere in a scholastic book club order form than, say, put prominently on display at Walden Books or B. Dalton. Um, today's young adult literature is more sophisticated than this type of stuff that came out in the 80s. Um, in the 90s. The book is all right. It's not really worth the effort to find. Uh, if you see it dirt cheap at a thrift store, used bookstore, or yard sale, like, yeah, maybe pick it up just because it's kind of like an artifact in that way. But I will say that it serves the film in two specific ways. First, it shows how important each actor's performance is. Because when you just read the words on the page, they don't resonate as much as when you have those actors saying them. That's unlike, say, the novelizations for Star Trek uh, 1 through 6, which read really well on their own as novels. The second thing is that the ending is different. And this is why I went off on this tangent now. It's sort of different. Keith still goes off with Watts. He and Amanda still have the date. The scene at the party is written differently. He shows up and Hardy gets what happens to him solely at the hands of Keith, as opposed to Duncan and his friends bursting in. Keith stands up to him, challenges him at the party. Hardy won't fight him. He wants his friends to go out and beat him up. And everybody sees right through it right there. And all of Hardy's friends and all of them just kind of walk away and like, screw this guy. And then from there, uh, Amanda goes off on her own, although she does seem to make up with Shane, who, after Amanda insisted on going through the date with Keith, had ditched her for the rich crowd. Like, you know, I don't want to be a social pariah like you are going to be right now because you're ditching Hardy for this loser. Um, and Shane comes out and says, hey, can we be friends again? I want to be friends again. And she, Amanda's like, call me tomorrow or something. Uh, and then you know, goes off on her own and then Keith goes with Watts. But but that that fact that Duncan doesn't come in um, is missing. And, and that ending, though, it does work, believe it or not. You know, you read it and you, you see this scene where Hardy, Keith basically calls Hardy out on the fact that he is too scared to fight him and he's too scared to kind of do that dirty work. And Hardy's friends are just like, what the hell? And, uh, and leave him. But it's it's not it's it's not as good as what's in the movie. It is totally not as good as and I'm gonna play the line again. I think it's safe to say that this 
party is about to become a historical fact. Because oh. that's one of my all-time favorite movie lines. And yeah, Coteus is playing the wisecracking bruiser in the movie. Oh, but he's so damn also so damn good and who almost and steals every scene she's in is Maddie Corman, who plays Keith's younger sister, Laura. Uh, she's a sophomore at the school who is constantly pursuing popularity, but is saddled with a brother whom she, like I said, refers to as the human tater tot. She's the perfect annoying younger sister, working Keith's nerves constantly but ultimately caring about her brother as she finds out about Hardy's plan to beat him up at the party and tells him about it out of concern rather than malice. Stoltz and Corman have some really great energy and chemistry together. In fact, the entire Nelson family does. And actually, that's one of the things I really liked about this movie, and I think it elevates some kind of wonderful when you think of the way that families, especially parents, are shown in John Hughes's movies, the teen movies anyway, they're usually one of three things. They're wacky and chaotic, like in Sixteen Candles, absent or self-involved like The Breakfast Club, Ferris Bueller, and I guess Weird Science. I have to admit, it's been I've seen Weird Science once, and it's like my least favorite Hughes film, so I can't really <laughs> speak to much of it other than, you know, there's an asshole brother. Or the parents are beaten down, like in Pretty in Pink. In fact, it's that last one, the beaten down parent, I want to talk about for a moment. Because Some Kind of Wonderful gets compared to Pretty in Pink all the time. And of course, it rightfully should. It is the same writer. It's the same director. It's pretty much the same plot, except the genders are different. And we get the correct, quote unquote, ending to Pretty in Pink. Although, tangent, I don't know if Andy going off of with Ducky would have really worked. I think that Pretty in Pink needs the fairy tale ending because Pretty in Pink is a fairy tale. Some Kind of Wonderful isn't set up as a fairy tale. And a big reason for that is the family that Keith comes from. In Pretty in Pink, Andy's dad, who is played wonderfully by Harry Dean Stanton, is beaten down and the two of them are just are on their own and they're this little unit who's barely scraping by. In Some Kind of Wonderful, Keith has two married working parents. His dad sells tires. His mom is a nurse. And the, the, and, and the family has three kids. They have Keith, Laura, and a younger daughter who is played by a 10-year-old Candace Cameron, who's also really good in the film. There are a couple of scenes. When we see them all together as a family, it's, it's a normal family dynamic. The siblings grade on each other. The dad wants his son to be better off than he is. And that's why his dad has the blow up over the money. But then Keith feels like I need to be honest with my father. And they have a, it's a bit dramatically written. I wish I could have had a, just a little bit more nuance to the conversation. But when he's like, dad, this is what you wanted, not what I wanted. And, and they come to an understanding that makes more realistic sense for once, just once in the 16 movies he wrote and directed and produced in the 80s. John Hughes gives us a pretty good look at how hard it is to be the parent of a teenager. Just for that split moments when John Ashton is just playing this, this, this dad who cares. And he's not being demanding in this sort of like, you'll, you'll do as I say or you get kicked out. 
He's just constantly pushing and he has an idea in his head because it's out of a place of caring. It's out of a place of he wants him to move up. Um, he even says, I, I want you to be the first guy in this family to not have to wash his hands when he gets home from work. And Keith, who's just come from work at the gas station, shows the motor oil in his hands. But like, you can see that. And I think that's why I bristle a little bit at the way some kind of wonderful gets dismissed when talking about the Hughes teen flicks. It's not The Breakfast Club. It's not Ferris Bueller's Day Off. And yes, it pretty much retells Pretty in Pink. But you do it a disservice when you make that comparison and leave it at that. Look a little more into it, and you'll see that beyond this and its troubled production, you have a well-performed film that's underrated. I do have a little bit more to say about that and some of the earlier points I made about how this movie is kind of a little bit ahead of its time in the conclusion part of this episode. But I'm going to take a break for now. And when I get back, I'm going to talk about the movie's soundtrack, as well as what other people have written about the film. So stick around. Wise men say, only fools but I can't have in love with you. Shall I say, would it be a sin if I can't have in love In all his decades of publishing history, one event has affected Superman more than any other. Worlds lived, worlds died, and that was only the beginning. Superman was never the same. Presenting Superman in Crisis. Available weekly from January 3rd, 2022 at johnreadscomics.com. The song you heard going into the break was Lick the Tin's cover of Can't Help Falling in Love. The song you heard coming out of the break was Turn to the Sky by the March Violets. Both are on the original motion picture soundtrack, which was released in concurrence with the film and produced by Hughes, who often had a hands-on approach to his film soundtracks. In fact, as noted in the book You Couldn't Ignore Me If You Try by Susanna Gora, Hughes was so well known for plucking relatively obscure British acts and putting them into his movies that MCA gave him his own label of Hughes music, though some kind of wonderful soundtrack was the label's first release. Overall, there are only a few releases on the Hughes music label, three albums and a handful of singles. The other two albums, in addition to some kind of wonderful, are the soundtracks to She's Having a Baby and Planes, Trains, and Automobiles. Nothing spectacular on the level of Yellow's Oh Yeah, Simple Minds, Don't You Forget About Me, OMD's If You Leave, comes from the soundtrack to Some Kind of Wonderful. 
Honestly, the only band I recognized at a glance was the Jesus and Mary chain, whose song The Hardest Walk is on the album. Hughes did have hopes for this label, though, saying, as Gora's book, Don't you, uh, you Couldn't Ignore Me If You Tried, quotes him saying, quote, American radio is unbelievably stagnant right now. Since the market here is so tough to break, we see our label as an alternative voice for young bands. It's a way to invade the charts with stuff that has, that's not supposed to be there. Considering that the 80s and 90s were the golden age for the pop rock music soundtrack, his idea is a sound one. Unfortunately, he didn't succeed here in giving us something on the level of what Cameron Crowe would do with, say, singles. But he did succeed in giving us some hidden gems, which is one of the great features of a movie soundtrack from this era. Now, you can find this album in various places. Uh, if you can't find a physical copy, it's, it is hard to find on vinyl and uh, CD. It might be in like used CD racks. It was, it was in the discount bins for years or like you'd find it at Borders buried in the soundtrack section um, at a really cheap price because nobody was buying it, especially like in 1993, 94. I, tangent again, I loved flipping through the soundtrack section at like Sam Goody, The Wall and Borders back in the 90s because you would find little hidden gems like this. I own the soundtrack to a couple of movies like that people like, wait, there was a soundtrack album for that? Like Threesome, the movie with Lara Flynn Boyle, Stephen Baldwin and Josh Charles. Yeah, like I have that soundtrack. <laughs> so again... Really, really, really fun thing to do. And you can find this, uh, you can find it or assemble it via streaming services. Uh, you can buy the CD off Amazon. I downloaded the entire album from iTunes way back in the day. And uh, there's enough track listings out there, like I said, that you could assemble a playlist if you want to. I'm going to talk about some of my favorite bits. I'm not going to go song by song through it. And I'll start with, though, uh, a song that's not even on the record. Uh, the song Abuse by Propaganda is the instrumental track I used to open this episode because it's the instrumental track that opens the film. It's great. It's actually one of the best pieces of music in the entire movie. But I guess a three-minute inst instrumental wasn't seen as worth taking up valuable record space in, or cassette space in 87. Or maybe Hughes kept it off because the band wouldn't give him the right to put it on the soundtrack or something. I don't know what the circumstances are behind it. There's plenty of times where songs used in movies never make it to the original motion picture soundtrack. The other ones that I love on this uh, album are the cover of Can't Help Falling in Love by the group Lick the Tins that I played a little while ago that closes the film. Um, that band seems to have the same DNA as bands like the Pogues, as well as maybe even a band that came later, the Cranberries. I'm also a huge fan of the two songs by March Violets. Uh, that's the band who makes an appearance in that scene at the club where Watts breaks up with Keith, you know, that I was talking about earlier. Turn to the Sky, that's the song you heard them perform as we came into this section. That's the song they perform in the movie in the club. The other song on the soundtrack is their cover of the Rolling Stones' Miss Amanda Jones. And that is what gives Thompson her character's name. And Watts is named after the drummer, Charlie Watts. And Keith is named after Keith Richards. Yeah, I see what Hughes was doing there. But the original song is in the movie. It's played during the Everybody's Getting Ready for the Big Date montage. And that was a staple 80s movie montage, if there ever was one. Uh, the cover that the March Violets do, do appears 
in the movie and it's on the album, the original Stones album, which is on Between the Buttons. Uh, it does not appear on the soundtrack, but you can you can find it pretty easily if you want to hear it. I like the March Violets cover because it reminds me of stuff like the Bangles cover of Hazy Shade of Winter, which is one of my all-time favorite covers of any song. In fact, I like the whole record, and I even created a playlist in iTunes that includes all of the tracks plus Propaganda's Abuse and the original Stones version of Amanda Jones so I could have everything from the film. And aside from the Jesus and Mary Chain, I didn't know many of the other groups, such as Flesh for Lulu, The Apartments, and Furniture. But I have to say that having all of this makes me feel a little bit cool because I'm not just listening to the usual 80s stuff. I found something only a few people know about. And I don't think anybody I knew had the soundtrack or maybe there were one or two people. Um, I know I, I knew a couple of people who had the pretty in pink soundtrack. I think I was the only person among my friends who had the say anything soundtrack. Cause Back in the day when we used to hang out at each other's houses or in college in each other's dorm rooms, inevitably, if if a CD collection was out in a rack, we'd flip through it and see what they had. And because and, it's it was topics of conversation. It was just one of those things you did in the same way that I'm sure the older kids, when records and cassettes were bigger, would flip through record and cassette collections. I don't know what the kids do these days because everything's on their iPhones. You know, like, do you go to a friend's house and hang out and like, how do you know what they're listening to without actually just kind of like accessing their stuff? I feel really old. So anyway, I didn't, nobody I knew had the soundtrack. I didn't buy the soundtrack in its entirety until I was um, in my 20s or 30s and had an iTunes account. So I downloaded it. But I like to think this makes me cool or a little bit cool. And I realize how dorky that sounds. I own that. Please let me have this. So that's it for the soundtrack. I'm going to wrap up soon. But before I head out, I've got some final thoughts on the film, uh, both for myself and others. For years, Jonathan Bernstein's Pretty in Pink, The Golden Age of Teenage Movies, has been my go-to for commentary on the 80s teen movie phenomenon. And he takes the, this is a dollar store pretty in pink approach, saying, now there you've got an ending where the poor boy gets the poor girl, where the rich kid is crushed by the integrity of the underclass, and where the object of desire turns out to have a strong spinal cord. I'm sorry, but pretty in pink kills this in every way. Some kind of wonderful mark to the point where John Hughes's fascination with adolescence hit a brick wall, this picture just seems a little tired. The youthful naivete was missing and the diamond earring motif was no substitute. It's not hollow enough to stand at proof that, yes, when you get old, your heart dies, but some kind of wonderful definitely marks the end of the innocence. In teen movie Hell, which I got just about a week or two ago and is a freaking amazing book, I really recommend it. Mike McPadden refers to the film as, quote, the Waterloo of John Hughes's teen movie juggernaut. But he also spends time contemplating the sexuality of Mary Stuart Masterson's Watts. Not in an insulting or homophobic way, however. 
He notes that there's a sexual ambiguity when it comes to John Cryer's Ducky from Pretty in Pink. Both Cryer and Ringwald had weighed in on this in, in recent years, and each of them has a different take. But with Watts, McPadden says that Watts seems to just be waiting for the moment where she can really come out, saying, quote, Free from all these Hughesian high school jerks in her immediate future, it's easy to envision a liberated adult Watts being allowed to find some real kind of wonderful. That sexual and even gender ambiguity of Watts is the subject of an essay by T. Cooper in the Hughes-centered essay collection, Don't You Forget About Me. His essay, You Look Good Wearing My Future, is all about the way he emulated the more androgynous style of various characters from Hughes' films as part of the self-discovery he went through during the 80s and 90s before he eventually transitioned, a journey he writes about in his 2013 book, Real Man Adventures. In another essay, Can't Help Falling in Love, Emily Franklin identifies with Watts, but from the point of view of a girl who had a lot of guy friends and whom she wishes she had that level of crush on. Now, she said in later in life, she sees friendships dissolved because of such complications. So it's taking the tack of what is it like to be Watts in the I have a crush on my best friend sort of way. And in the essay, My Mary, author Ben Schrank confesses how Mary Stuart Masterson was his type and he uses some kind of wonderful as a vehicle to tell stories of his own pursuit of the Watts type. Now, as for me, now as for me, I had a lot of girl friends, note the space between those two words, in high school and college. Some of them came a little, pretty close to Watts' level of cool, but most of them were just girls. <laughs> I have no other way of putting it. I had feelings for a couple of them, which sometimes led to unrequited crushes or unmitigated disasters. But I understood the Watts-Keith dynamic. And looking back, if some of my assumptions about a few of those friends from back in the day are correct, I might have actually understood the Keith-Watts-Amanda Jones dynamic where I was Keith without realizing it. And I'm not trying to flatter myself here. I don't want to get into too much detail because it's really unnecessary, but hindsight being 2020, it was kind of like, oh, huh. What makes me talk so much about some kind of wonderful, it's is because it's a movie that has way more going for it than a just being a pretty in pink redo. In fact, it's Hughes being way ahead of its time. He'd be more or less done with teenagers after this. Now, there's a teen romance subplot in The Great Outdoors, which comes out the following year and is directed by Howard Deutsch, as I mentioned. And in uh, Hughes's next film that he directed in 89, I believe, Uncle Buck, there is a teenage daughter storyline with Mia. But for the most part, Uncle Buck is John Candy and then eventually Macaulay Culkin. And Macaulay Culkin kind of becomes John Hughes's muse in the 90s as he writes a lot more family-friendly comedy stuff like Home Alone and the Beethoven movies and stuff like that. But it's a shame because I would have liked to see him try to give teenagers one more shot in the 90s. I mentioned this a little bit earlier. Some Kind of Wonderful is kind of a 1990s movie that's trapped in 1987. Now, 
the most on the verge of the 90s, 80s movie is Say Anything. But Say Anything came out in 89, so it literally was on the verge of the 90s. But it was also directed by Cameron Crowe, who had this prescience that Seattle was going to be the epicenter of teen culture at some point. And it happened in a few years, and then he directed Sinkles. So there you go. But in Some Kind of Wonderful, we have people I literally saw my in high school, way more than any other John Hughes movie. And I'm going to bring on another movie because um, Mike Bailey and I talked about Pump Up the Volume. And he said he made that point that there were a lot of people in that school that you just saw in high school. Like you recognize these people from your high school. And there's bits and pieces of that in this movie. I mean, especially like Amanda Jones and Watts, the pretty chick and the alternative girl, put these characters in Pump Up the Volume. And Amanda Jones is hanging with Paige Woodward, or she is Paige Woodward, really. And Watts and Nora, well, maybe Nora ditches Hard Harry for a drummer girl, and there's a whole, we just ship Watts and Nora. I could see that. Really, though. Silly jokes aside, whereas Pretty in Pink was giving us yet another high school fairy tale, maybe the high school Cinderella story, some kind of wonderful is almost doing a meta commentary on it. Almost. Keith and Watts don't necessarily need high school. And you can tell that. You can tell the two of them are just putting in their time until they get to be independent and go wherever life is going to take them. Hardy Jens is a shitty stereotype of a shitty person because in the eyes of people like Keith and Watts, that's all that people like him are or ever will be. Amanda's friend Shane, same thing. In fact, I would say Shane is probably out on Facebook trying to get random people from her senior class to join their, in her MLM. Amanda is the most conflicted about all of it, as I've mentioned a couple of times, because of that way she's allowed herself to be made in the image of Hardy and Shane. But she Kelly tailors it at the end, and that's the best possible ending for her. I don't think this was his original intent, but in some kind of wonderful hues and Deutsch, they're telling the kids watching that high school is essentially bullshit. And what's more 90s than that, really? The film is out on Blu-ray and looks good in the better format. And like I said, I finally got to 86, the VHS copy I've had since the mid-90s. The features were originally on the DVD. There is a commentary with Deutsch and Leah Thompson. Leah Thompson and Deutsch got married. Um, they started dating after the movie was over and out and everything. And I'm glad it got this treatment because even though it's a lesser Hughes film, it, deliver, it deserves some sort of recognition. And like I said a few times now, Hughes veered away from high school after this. But really, 1987 is the beginning of the end for the 80s teen flick as we know it. The Brat Pack had started to get too old and too tired of playing teenagers. And the younger side of this generation didn't exactly slide into the vacancies that they left. Yeah, you have the Corey movies of this time, and you have a few others, but... It's really not until you get to the late 90s with the Scream movies and Jennifer Love Hewitt that you get to see this true resurgence of what 80s teen movies were uh, for another generation. 
And this between period, which happened to be my own teenage years, and I've blogged about this before, we didn't have exactly what the early 80s had. But we had nascent careers to some people who would be the stars of our part of the generation, such as Keanu Reeves from you know, Bill and Ted, and, and he did a number of movies in the early 90s. Winona Ryder, who picked up the baton Molly Ringwald dropped and took it in an amazing and much different direction during her, her teen and post-teen years. Christian Slater, of course. And we also had the all-too-short career of the Great River Phoenix. And there are some freaking gems in the late 80s and early mid-1990s from all of these actors and in this, in this particular genre. But as far as the Hughes aesthetic, it faded from the big screen. It wasn't completely dead, though, because the younger siblings and cousins of Hughes' Cora audience rediscovered them on television through syndicated and network and cable broadcasts, as well as on TV programs and TV movies. It's those TV movies that kind of wanted to imitate some of the Hughes stuff that I'm going to be looking at in about a month. Now, my next episode, two weeks from now, is going to be my second in this or sort of mini-series about America, uh, looking at the A Day in the Life of America book from 1986 and documentary from 2019. But two episodes from now, episode 136, I'll be looking at a pair of television movies that NBC produced in 1988, starring what was then a who's who of teen television stars, the driver's ed comedy Crash Course and the prom flick Dance Till Dawn. So until then, check out the show notes for some extras about some kind of wonderful, including clips and posters. And don't forget to send feedback and follow me on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And as always, thank you very much for listening and take care. Thanks for listening to Pop Culture Affidavit, which is produced by me, Tom Panneries. All clips are copyright their respective copyright holders and no infringement is intended. This podcast is a part of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you can find at twotruefreaks.com. If you like the show, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It helps the show get noticed by other people. Feedback via email can be sent to popcultureaffidavit at gmail.com. For show notes and essays and other things random in the world of popular culture, visit popcultureaffidavit.com. You can also follow this show on Facebook at facebook.com slash popcultureaffidavit and on Twitter at popaff, that's P-O-P-A-F-F. Thanks for listening, and come back next time for more pop culture randomness.